Carol and I had been uh, getting acquainted for uh, a little bit, and eventually I took up the courage to ask her to go out with me, and we kind of got along and uh, got better acquainted and better acquainted and continued to keep getting together and talk with one another. And one evening I asked her to go with me to an ice cream shop after church. So we go to this ice cream shop and I'm parked way out in the boonies and we get out of the ice cream shop. It's at night and we're walking along toward the car and my hand, the back of my hand touched the back of hers and then our hands kind of fell into each other. Oh. oh, what electricity, what delight. And you know, we got to that car like that. It was a lot, we just all of a sudden were there at the car. How did this happen? Did, it should have taken us longer. And then, of course, I had to let go of her hand. Um, this is the beginning of what we might call romance, right? I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16 uh, as we continue our series in 1 Corinthians. The Corinthian church has asked Paul a number of questions, and he's going to answer some of those questions. And here in verses 1 through 16, there's some questions about marriage and singleness. Uh, more about singleness next week, we will touch on the subject this morning, but mostly this morning about marriage. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word this morning, 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 16. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. 
If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Please have a seat. This morning, Paul is going to address four questions about physical intimacy in marriage. This is the theme of verses 1 through 7. In verse 1, we find an important question. In view of the immorality that's all around us, what is a proper view of human sexuality? When Paul begins by saying, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, he means these are questions that the Corinthians had asked in their letter to him that he, they had asked Paul to answer. The words that are in quotes in the ESV here are drawn, I believe, from the Corinthian letter to Paul. Now, we don't have that letter, so we don't know all that went with this quote, but it's not hard to reconstruct. I think it would go something like this. We are confused and are debating several things about human sexuality and marriage. We see that you are a single man and that in view of the immorality around us, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? Is that true 100%? Even for those who are married? Others of us are arguing that since the body counts for nothing, why not go to the temple prostitutes? You see, the words in verse 1, the ESV rightly putting in quotes, do not represent what Paul is saying. After all, Paul's going to write to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.3 that the idea that marriage is forbidden to believers is a departure from the faith and is of the teachings of demons and deceitful spirits. So that can't be what Paul's talking about. Yet here, Paul will also teach that the life of the unmarried person is actually a life that is to be preferred from the standpoint of kingdom living. So asceticism, the idea that food and drink and sex are bad things that we need to suppress, that's not the Bible's position. Asceticism is not the Bible's position. Food, drink, sex, the body, those are all good things. But all good things can be misused, can't they? And so, food and drink and sex and the body are all misused greatly in our own culture, and they were at Corinth. The Bible affirms that our sexuality is a gift from God. So, the second question, how can our sexuality be good? 
Now, the first thing we need need to note is that there's a lot of ways it can be bad. We've talked about that actually last week. But notice in verse 2 where he says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, the word translated sexual immorality there is actually in the plural, because of the temptation to sexual immoralities. That is, there's a lot of ways we can go wrong here. Lots of ways. It's precisely because sex can be bad in so many ways that we ought to pursue the way that sex can be all good. It's at this point we might ask the question, why? I know that many young people ask this question, why did God make us sexual creatures? Why do I have these desires, these longings? The first thing that we have to say is that God did not make a mistake. God did not err. He makes all things right. The second thing we might say is that He wants the planet filled with people. (laughs) And so this is the way that He's going to make that happen in fulfilling the creation mandate. The third is that by His good grace, He's planted such a strong desire in human beings so that in the context of how God designed it in marriage, it may be a place of unbelievable joy and pleasure and blessing. We are all broken more than we imagine, and we need redeeming. The whole of us needs redeeming, body and spirit. Sometimes when we lament about the power of temptation and our weakness with that why God question, we're really ignoring the fact of our fallenness and the effects of our own choices. It's not God that we ought to ask why to. We ought to ask ourselves why, as in, why am I so slow to grow as a worshiper of Jesus in this area of my life? Now that's a question about which your church And your brothers and sisters have some answers and can help you. Notice how Paul answers the question of how our sexuality can be good in verse 2. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. This is full mutual sexual relations. The actual grammar of the passage is to say, let him be having Let her be having. This is not about satisfying just one person of the pair. It is the equality of personhood between husband and wife. Notice that it's monogamous. It doesn't say, let each husband have his own wives, or let each wife have her own husband's. Notice that it is heterosexual. We talked about that last week as we addressed the issue of same-sex sexual relationships. And notice further that it is in a legal framework. The term husband and wife are used. That is a societally recognized title of husband and a societally recognized title of wife. There is a lot of people, a lot of younger ones who are 
justifying their living together without being married by saying something like, well, you know, we're married in God's eyes. No. There has to be this societal recognition of this lifelong commitment and covenant. And that's how our sexuality can be good. So then that brings us to a third question. Are there ways that husbands and wives can best serve their spouses in their physical relationship? Are there ways that husbands and wives can best serve one another in that relationship? Verse 3, you best serve your spouse when you give them your body the best that you can. The husband should give to his wife. Notice give to his wife her conjugal rights. Likewise, the wife to her husband. This is not a justification of anything degrading. Conjugal rights is not intended to justify sexual practices intended to assert one's selfishness over the other person. But a vital sex life is a debt that you owe your spouse. Literally, Paul calls it the payment of what is due. Notice that this is a mutual debt. Each man, each woman, verse 2. The husband should give, likewise the wife, to her husband, verse 3. Verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body. The mutuality here is so important. The notion that one partner in a marriage can use these verses to clobber their partner over the head is so wrong. You as the partner are not the one to rebuke your spouse on these matters, especially if you are doing it to assert your own selfishness. One of the things that I find troubling whenever I am teaching what the Bible has to say about marriage is that people listen selectively. And by selective listening, what I mean is that people listen with a view of, well, this is really good for him, or this is really good for her. I hope she's listening, or I hope he's getting this. No, no, no. Let us all focus our attention on this Scripture with the view of, Lord, what is it that you have for me? Paul makes clear the issue about pleasing God and pleasing your spouse. You know, back in chapter 6, he said there at the end, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God. You are not your own. So whether you're married or not, you don't be, your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the Holy Spirit. But if you're married, it doesn't just belong to the Holy Spirit. It belongs to your spouse. This is incredible, isn't it? Paul makes clear the issue about pleasing God and pleasing your spouse. When you get married, you are saying, even though you might not have known it when you got married, this is what you are saying. You are saying, I owe you my body. In uh, the Book of Common Prayer from 1552, we have this uh, phrase from the exchange of rings, which continues down to this day. 
With this ring I thee wed, with my body I thee worship. You're not your own. You belong to the other. Sex is not dirty, but it can be made dirty. Paul wants to make the physical relationship of couples beautiful and holy. Now, this sense of obligation in Paul's instructions offends some people. There's the person who sees that sex is bad, or the person that sees that no sex is, uh, that having no sex is a good thing in marriage, does not want to accept the obligation uh, of sex that marriage brings. Our laws still today have this recognition built into family law for annulment on the basis of not obtaining conjugal rights. It's built into tort law where some accident or action causes the loss of such comfort and affection. Now, I know that the liberated view is that my body belongs to me, and I do whatever I want with it, whether I'm married or not. Knowing that your body belongs to your spouse, even more than it belongs to you, brings a dimension of oneness that I submit to you is both beautiful and profound. One of the sources I have of amusement is whenever I conduct a wedding. I look at the wife coming down the aisle. She's gazing into the eyes of her husband-to-be. The, wife, uh, the husband is gazing into the eyes of his wife-to-be, and they are looking at each other like, we know each other so well, there's absolutely nothing we'll ever know about the other person. And I look at them, and I go, you guys are in for a big surprise. But it's a beautiful surprise for those who walk with Jesus, for those who are committed to the Lord and to one another. I, I think about my own journey, how I felt like, man, I know Carol so much, so well. In that first year of marriage, how much I learned about her and grew in my affection and appreciation of her. And through the years in which we had children, that sense of working together and feeling the joys and pains and trials and hardships and loss and walking through their children going into adulthood and launching them into the big crazy world out there and Walking together with Carol through that, walking with Carol through things like menopause and sickness and loss and the deaths of our parents. And to hold one another, to experience joy and intimacy with one another. It's a dimension of oneness that is both beautiful and profound. You're not your own, Christian. 
Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God owns your body. That means that what He says about what to do or not do about your body is how the Christian is determined to live. But on this earth, just as importantly, your body is not your own. If you are married, it belongs to your spouse. You do not have authority over your own body. And notice the mutuality and equality here. It doesn't just go one direction. Do not use these as clobber verses. Physical union in Christian marriage is on the high and holy ground of God's design. This is not one partner's privilege and the other partner's obligation, but rather a unifying mutual debt to please the other person. Did you know that our physical union in marriage is the expression of the spiritual union of marriage? In Ephesians 5, Paul says, or he's talking about husbands and wives, he says, uh, I speak of a mystery, but I'm speaking of Christ and the church. The very fact that he has to put the footnote, I'm speaking of Christ and the church, means that there is a deep and profound spiritual mystery to the oneness of a husband and a wife. And what is the tangible way in which God has designed that we express that oneness, that mutuality and exclusivity, nobody else in, just me and my wife, that's it. It's marriage. It is something to lament when what God designed to be a fantastic pleasure and joy has become a source of such dysfunction regret, and pain. Verses 5 through 7 have the fourth question. Is it ever right to withhold physical union from one's spouse? Is it ever right? And the short answer, with one hypothetical modification, is no. Do not deprive, verse 5. Uh, literally, it means stop depriving one another. Apparently, the people at Corinth had this problem. You know, what's interesting is in a sex-crazed culture, not that many people are actually having sex. <laughs> and there's all kinds of dysfunctions and problems. Paul says, stop depriving each other. Again, mutuality. Stop depriving one another. The entrance of selfish demandingness in either direction by either partner makes a mess of things. And this word deprive is a strong word for taking away what rightfully belongs to another. Now, it should go without saying, but I need to say it. Depriving one's spouse is sinful. But may I submit to you, so is demanding that one's spouse stop depriving. The ugly situation where couples blame and accuse in either direction is sinful and evil. So, there's one hypothetical modification to the command, do not deprive one another. Notice, except perhaps. <laughs> He's not making it a rule. He's not even making it a practice. He's making it as a potential possibility, except perhaps. And notice, this is to devote oneself to prayer, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. That is, the couple agrees to not be engaged in physical union so that the two of them may devote themselves to prayer as it were a fasting from physical relationship. 
But there's four conditions to this. First, mutual consent. The default position is to be sexually active unless both parties agree not to. Secondly, for a short time, don't stay away from one another for very long. Thirdly, get back to being active after your prayer fast to avoid Satan's scheming temptations. And fourth, verse six, this exception is a concession, not a command. Paul's not commanding that we abstain from sex in order to pray. He's only saying that we are permitted to do so. The command is stop depriving one another. The concession is you can stop if both of you agree and if it's for a short time. Now perhaps a word about tenderness is important here. Again, no partner should use these verses to beat their partner over the head with them. How many times have I said that? Right? Rather, each person should seek to be the partner that their spouse desires so that this becomes mutually satisfying. And in that tenderness, I would say that a concern for the health of the partner should be obvious. If your partner is dying from COVID, that is not the time to be asking for physical union. (laughs) Tenderness is important. Verse 7 tells us that this is a way of life that is not optional for married people. But there is another option. The typical person is designed for marriage and for an active sex life. Most people have that gift from God. However, there is a gift of celibacy that enables a person to avoid these complications of sex entirely. This word gift is the word charisma, as Paul calls it, can be something that can be desired, desire that gift of singleness. Or it can happen by circumstance, that is, the opportunity has not come to you to marry, at least at this point in time. But note that Paul calls it a gift. I think that too often in our own culture, we have in evangelical circles held out marriage as the be-all, end-all of joy and singleness as the be-all, end-all of some lesser position. Instead, I think we ought to recognize that both have benefits and their challenges. So now let's look at uh, some important lessons in the rest of this section for the married believers, for the unmarried believers, and for the rest. Verse 8, for the unmarried believer, it is good to stay unmarried. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to remain single as I am. It seems reasonable to believe that Paul never married after writing this and that he was unmarried at this point in his life. Now, Paul's personal history prior to his conversion is less clear. As a rabbi of the Pharisees, it is next to impossible to believe that he was never married. It's, more, it's not impossible, but it's next to impossible. It's more probable that he was widowed, though it is also possible that he was divorced. Who is Paul addressing here in verse 8? 
It could be that he's just addressing widowers and widows, but this more general word, unmarried, seems to refer to all unmarried people, whether married previously or not. That is, whether you've been married previously or not, if you are single, it is good for them to remain single as I am. We don't accept this in many Christian circles today, do we? Namely, that singleness is a good thing. And we do the single adults in our orbit great harm sometimes by how callously we treat them. Well, how old are you anyway? Are you dating anybody? Well, when is it that you're going to get married? Like there's something, we, we're so unthinking, such tremendous harm we inflict on people, assuming that marriage is the best position, or that God has not called people to the single life, or that there's something wrong with the person if they are single. No, singleness is a good thing, Paul says here. I want everybody to be like me, single as I am. Now, by the way, at various times in church history, the opposite has been true, where singleness, it was taught, was somehow more holy and closer to God than being married. Paul says there's something much, much worse would be to be involved in sexual immorality. That would be worse than getting married. If you're not in control, marry. The consequences of a lack of self-control are too lightly regarded, particularly in our own culture. So it's better to be single, Not better than that is to marry, but it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Burning meaning being out of control, burning a sense of judgment on oneself. We also have to add that so often people tear, uh, do not consider the consequences of marrying. It's too lightly regarded by those seeking it. People go, you like Snickers? I like Snickers. Let's get married. Or quite frequently what happens in American culture, particularly in American Christian cultures, is whoever you happen to be dating at the time when you decide, boy, I should get married, that's the person you end up with. Better to think that through before you carry on that lifelong commitment. So, that's for the unmarried believer it is good to stay unmarried. For the married believers, there's only one command. Stay married. Look at verses 10 and 11. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. And, we'll skip the parenthesis for a moment, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Paul's giving instructions here when he says, not I but the Lord, 
he's giving instructions that derive from the teaching of the Lord Jesus when he taught here on this earth. He's not saying that this is more authoritative because Jesus talked about it. He's just saying Jesus addressed this subject. He's reminding us that Jesus had some important things to say to married people. The presupposition in these two verses is that both the wife and the husband are believers. A wife must not separate from her husband. Now, that wasn't allowed in Judaism. A woman was only allowed to initiate divorce proceedings if her husband consented. And there were two kinds of divorce in antiquity, merely leaving, which was what was typical of most women who divorced. They just left. And there were formal legal proceedings, and most men did that. But regardless, both of them, Paul is saying, divorce is divorce. And by the time we get to the first century, Roman law on the subject had liberalized very much, much like in our own culture. And so people could divorce at any time for any reason, for all sorts of things. And the Roman writer Seneca said this, is there any woman that blushes at divorce now? Now that certain illustrious and noble ladies reckon their years, that is, they're counting how old they are, not by the number of consuls, not by the number of Roman rulers we've had, but instead they count how old they are by the number of husbands that they've had. (laughs) Well, let's see, that happened with husband number two or three or four. And they leave home in order to marry and marry in order to be divorced. That was the condition of things in the Roman Empire at the time. So a wife must not separate from her husband. But nor should a husband divorce his wife. Verse 11. Now, where is it that Jesus taught this? Well, Matthew 19, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. It was not this way from the beginning. I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, they're shocked by it. If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Paul goes, duh, yeah. Mark chapter 10, some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He says, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus says, it's because of the hardness of your hearts that Moses wrote you this law. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. When they're in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Luke 16, 18, anyone who divorces his wife, this is Jesus again, who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So, what is Jesus saying to married believers? One command, stay married. Notice that Paul recognizes that there are occasions where people do not follow that command. Verse 11, but if she does, Christians do not always do what is right and best. And verse 11 says there are two permissible outcomes of divorce if a person divorces. They are remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. 
Reconciliation reflects the heart of God. By the way, we might say that it's very, very hard to not make an excuse for our own actions. Everyone in painful marital situations has an extremely difficult time in looking at these texts with any kind of objectivity. Rather, it's very easy to self-justify and to seek to get other people to agree with ourselves. That's the true, that's just true not just for this text, but for any text, isn't it? Whenever it affects us, don't we want to kind of figure our way around it? Paul is clear, married Christians are to view this covenant as permanent. Either remain single or else be reconciled if you divorce. So now he gets to the rest. We talked about the unmarried believer, we talked about married believers, now the rest namely believers who are married to unbelievers. And he says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. What he's saying here is that he's going to address something that the Lord Jesus himself did not address when he was here on earth. That's why he says, I, not the Lord. He's not saying that this is my personal opinion and you can take it or leave it. He's not saying that. He's not saying it's merely a guideline. No, he is speaking with apostolic authority as giving us the word of God. He's just saying the Lord Jesus didn't address this particular case. Case number one, verse 12, if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, if she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. The man's a believer, the wife is not. How it happened that they get married is irrelevant. It may be that they married when the man was a believer and the woman wasn't. It may be that they got married and then afterwards he became a believer. It's not addressing that subject. But what it is addressing is she wants to live with him in the full connection of monogamous commitment to one another. She wants to do that, then he must not divorce her. Verses 13 and 14, case number two, the woman has a husband who's an unbeliever. He consents to live with her. She should not divorce him. Notice the mutuality and equality here. How the husband is an unbeliever is not relevant. He wants to live with her in the full connection of committed monogamous relationship. It's not just about what they say, it's how they live. You know, you can't say, okay, uh, I want to live with you and then go and be adulterous with a whole bunch of people and then say, see, the Bible tells you you got to stay with me because you're a believer and I'm not and I want to live with you. No, 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 it's not just about that. It's about the whole thing of saying what it means to live with someone in marriage. She must not divorce him. In both these cases, there's mutuality, equality, with responsibility put on the believer. Why should they stay? Verse 14. First of all, because believers are not defiled by such marriages. Rather, unbelievers are in some sense made holy by them. This is not that they require salvation by being married to a believer. That's not what Paul's saying when it says made holy. Rather, what it means is that by living with a believer, you are set apart in a context and an environment in a special way that brings you as an unbeliever in close day-to-day proximity to the gospel and to Jesus. 
You can't be married to a true believer in Jesus and not know that you are married to a true believer in Jesus. It's going to happen. So in that sense, the unbelieving spouse is made holy. In fact, the effects of staying or leaving upon one's children are profound. Do you see it there in verse 14 at the end? Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Again, it's not talking about the children's salvation. It's saying if the believer stays, the children are in a sanctified environment. It's not that they acquire salvation on the basis of a parent staying in an unsaved house. Rather, the marriage between believer and unbeliever is the most fertile ground for holiness in children, and divorce is a very fertile ground for uncleanness in them. Third case, if the unbelieving partner separates, that is if the unbelieving partner says, I don't want to have anything to do with you, let them go, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved or bound. Enslaved or bound to what? Some suggest that this gives freedom for remarriage following divorce. If that's so, it's the only place in the Bible where remarriage is explicitly permitted. In my mind, the better idea is that not enslaved or not bound means that they are not bound to maintain the marriage that the unbelieving spouse is determined to dissolve. As I see it, this verse doesn't address at all the issue of remarriage following divorce. Jesus addressed that several times, never affirmatively but I simply just don't see that Paul's addressing that subject in this text. He does say at the end of verse uh, 15, God has called you to peace. That could mean don't contest divorces with unbelievers, make the separation as peaceful as possible. However, the verses weren't put in the Bible till much later, and I'm wondering if that sentence shouldn't be attached to the words in verse 16. God has called you to peace for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? God's called us to hold wholeness, so rather than seeking to dissolve your marriage, maybe you need to think about how God may use you for the salvation of your spouse. And by the way, the very fact that verse 16 is there tells us that verse 14 doesn't mean that the unbelieving wife or husband is saved because they live with a believing spouse. But it does say in verse 16 that their salvation is a possibility, doesn't it? The very fact that we're wondering whether he's saying don't fight separation because there's no assurance that the spouse will ever be saved, or he's saying that one should seek to maintain the marriage because the partners might get saved that way. The very fact that we're wondering about that means that probably both answers are possible. Paul makes no promises about the salvation of one's spouse, but I think that Paul's a hopeful man when it comes to trusting in the power of the gospel. And he knows that salvation is more frequent when a person is in daily close contact with a real Christian. And that's why he's saying, if you can, stay. 
So let's think about some applications. First, some applications related to this uh, first seven verses related to um, physical intimacy in marriage. Sex is not just for procreation. It's designed by God for us mutually to express physically the spiritual oneness of marriage. The pleasure of our partner is the delight of God. So we should study what pleases our spouse, particularly in the areas of physical intimacy. Typically, males view sex in a more detached fashion from the rest of life, while women incorporate their sexuality as a part of everything that happens in their lives. And each, both male and female, need to be sensitive to the pleasing, not of themselves, but of their partner. The emphasis of this text very clearly is on the equality and mutuality of sexual pleasure in marriage. Do not abandon that biblical model. Sex is not the privilege of one partner and the duty of the other. Each belongs mutually to the other, and where there is consistent one-sidedness on this matter, the issues run deeper than the sexual relationship. There's something else going on. Different people have different sex interest. The default position for the Christian is if one partner wants to have sex, you should have it. Today's media causes people to feel that their bodies are inadequate. So for both husband and wives, one important application is that you should constantly assure your spouse of how wonderfully they satisfy, fulfill, and please you. You know, our sexual history has a way of affecting us deeply, doesn't it? And so may I offer this suggestion, this counsel, for the sake of pleasing your spouse as well as your own relationship and maturity in Christ, get the healing you need from the cross of Christ for whatever hinders your vibrant physical intimacy with your spouse. You know, for some people that may mean healing from sexual abuse. For others, it may mean forgiveness for past sexual immoralities. Either way, don't allow the past to be an excuse for failing to give yourself to your partner. Rather, seek to get freedom so that you can give yourself to your partner. Just because you don't want to have physical intimacy is not a good enough reason to withhold it from your spouse. Just because your spouse doesn't deserve it is not a good enough reason to withhold it from your spouse. But if your spouse is involved in sexual immoralities, porneia, it is right to get that resolved before sexual activity. In some cases, this involves talking things through and repentance and reconciliation and accountability. In other cases, it might involve consultation with a physician because of the potential of sexually transmitted disease. But all of those things need to get resolved if you've been involved in porneia of any kind. Some word to the unmarried. You can prepare for marriage by avoiding porneia, sexual immorality. But also you prepare for marriage by living unselfishly. And all the married people here would say a hearty amen to that. 
Learn to live unselfishly. The best sex partner is an unselfish person. So now I want to finish the message with a prayer. A prayer for all kinds of people in all kinds of situations here. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for our children and our grandchildren. We pray for their, pu- their future spouses. We pray that they will be kept safe sexually. This is a dangerous world for children. We pray that they will be kept pure sexually. This is a tempting world. We pray that they will be selfless so that they can bless their future mates. Thank you, God, that you made us sexual beings, and because this is so, sex is good. Help us not to distort it into something wicked. Lord, I pray for the unmarried in the room. Help them to know your will and to live for you, and to the extent that you have called them in this moment to embrace the gift from God of singleness, help them to know how to live in that way. We pray that as a church, we would be welcoming of single people. Up to 40% of all adults in America are single. And I fear that in the evangelical church, we have not done a very good job of welcoming them in our midst. Forgive us for that, Lord. For those who are married to believers, Lord, help us to see that staying married is your will. And if I do end up in divorce, help me to see that your will is that I stay single or reconcile with my spouse. For those of us who are married to unbelievers, Lord, help them to help those dear ones to so put Christ on display that it would be possible and a real thing that their spouse comes to know the Savior through it. Help them to stay married if their spouse wants to stay and help them to, help them to let them go if their unbelieving spouse wants to leave them. Lord, for all of us, help us to know that we are not our own. First of all, we belong to the Holy Spirit of God. And if we are married, help us to know that we belong, our bodies belong to our spouses, not to ourselves. Help us to trust that where you have placed me is in fact what is best for me. And Lord, help me not to do sinful things in the future, that would put me in great peril with regard to my sexuality or with regard to my marriage, either as it exists right now or if I'm single, with regard to my future marriage. Lord, help me, keep me from sin. Lord, may we make much of the gospel of Christ, that you redeem us body and soul, Help us to know that at the cross of Christ, there is grace, there is love, there is forgiveness for sin, and there is joy and hope for a future that extends even into eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.